Good morning, Redeemer. Good to be together. I want to talk about ambassadorship this morning out of 2 Corinthians 5. It's a subject I think all of us can relate to since almost all of us are here from other places. I never thought I'd be in another place. I grew up in a small provincial town called Owensboro, Kentucky. Have you heard of Owensboro? No, I didn't think you had. It's a, it's a little place. And um, growing up there, if you had asked me about the Arab people that we live with now, no one ever did that, of course, but if you had, just if you had asked me, I would have told you kind of from my TV image of the world that all Arabs were Muslim, all Arabs owned guns, and all Arabs would happily kill Americans. That was just kind of my provincial TV view. I left Owensboro a couple of years after uh, uh, graduating from high school, never to return. And travel with me now, 20 years later, to when I'm actually leading a program of American students, American university students, who had an exchange program in Tunisia, North Africa, with Arabs. The exchange program was actually to assign university students to live in the Tunisian homes, Muslim homes, of students all across that country of Tunisia. Tunisia, as you know, is kind of ground zero for Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring. And it was there I discovered the Arab view of Americans, which was all Americans are Christians, all Americans own guns, and all Americans would happily kill Arabs. We'd been looking at each other through TV lenses. It was astounding. It was on that program I met a young man named Hatem. Hatem was a practical joker. He was one of these guys that was always pulling jokes on the other students or us. And it developed into kind of a friendly rivalry between me and Hatem. One time, Hatem took uh, a number of us out to the Muslim beach where we could splash around and play away from the kind of the decadent European beaches. And while out there, I decide, as I see a sandbar located out maybe 100 yards from the shore, that Hatem and I should race out there. I used to be on the swim team, and I thought I could beat him. Anyhow, I said, come on, Hatem, I'll race you out to the sandbar. Hatem goes, no, no, you go on. I must take a cigarette. So, okay, so I start splashing my way out to the sandbar, and then I notice that Hatem had dove under the water and was swimming to beat me out to the sandbar. This was my chance. I kind of shadowed him until he came up right in front of me, a perfect place. I grab him in a chokehold. I take him down under the water. Kaboosh! I bring him back up. He's sputtering. I'm laughing just for effect. I take him down one more time. Kaboosh! I bring Hotem back up. I spin him around, and it's not Hotem. <laughs> It's a very frightened Tunisian that knows that an American has come to kill him personally. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. He doesn't speak English. It was then I had that sort of out-of-body experience when I looked up on the shore and there saw his extended family gathering. 
they're peering. They're not mad yet. They're not full of death yet. They're just wondering what's going on. It was then I thought about the next day's newspaper, American terrorists killed on Tunisian beach. (laughs) This kid who I've just dunked is backing up like this. And uh, I'm following him up to the beach. And um, uh, there's a lot of confusion. And I'm very concerned that I have imminent death coming. And you know what I need at this point, right? You know I need an ambassador. I need someone to reconcile two parties at odds with one another. Guess who shows up? Hatem. Hey, what is going on? I said, Hatem, come here. I grab him by the arm. I bring him over. I say, Hatem. I explain to Hatem what's happened. Now, fortunately for me and fortunately for my progeny, Hatem thinks this is hilarious. Tears are streaming down his face as he explains to this family what's just transpired. Fortunately for me, this family thinks this is hilarious. I'm invited into lunch, (laughs) big Arab tent. I'm reconciled. That's the point of ambassadors. That's what ambassadors do. This passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, is best known for ambassadorship. Actually, it's known for so much more. So as I read it, notice how gospel-saturated this passage is, starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their their transgressions, their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, four four things, there's... So much in this passage, we're not going to be able to cover it all. But four things that we want to look at here. Our understanding of people, verses 16 through 17. Secondly, our understanding of God's work in the world, 18 through 19. Thirdly, our understanding of our role as Christians, in verse 20. And finally, our understanding of Christ's work, in verse 21. People, God's work in the world our role as Christians, and an understanding of what Christ has done. So, part one, starting with how we view people in verse 16. Paul says in verse 16 that ambassadors view people correctly. We reject sinful views. We reject fleshly, racist views of other people. We put that aside. Paul says that that's our natural tendency. We even viewed Christ that way. We view Jesus from worldly eyes. There was a point in your life when you saw him from worldly perspectives. 
So even people that want to say nice things about Jesus end up saying worldly, fleshly things about him. He's a a great moral teacher. He was just a man, a great prophet. He, He was divine. He was divine. He was not those things. And to leave that out, you see, to leave out that he's God incarnate and anything less curses Christ with faint praise. Paul's point is that if we saw Jesus that way, how much more we're going to see other people through TV lenses. If TV had been invented, maybe he would have talked about that. How we see people through lenses of TV, not the eyes of God. Now, now to view people correctly is a situational challenge. It kind of depends on how you feel about other people. You know what I mean by that? Situational challenge. We tend to elevate people we like. We tend to put down people we don't. So on the one hand, we recognize from the Bible that there's no such thing as a mere mortal, as C.S. Lewis reminded us. All people have the mark of the divine. All people were created in the image of God. All people have dignity, worth, and value to God because they reflect him. The beauty of people reflects God. So there is value in every person that you meet. It doesn't matter whether you like them or not. As an ambassador, we check that tendency inside of of ourselves, that natural tendency to put down people we don't like. At the same time, Christians understand all people to be sinners. And not not just sinners, but without Christ, enemies of God. Every... Every ambassador, therefore, checks that tendency to glorify people that we admire, to elevate people beyond their status, because we recognize that every human is fallen. Every every person is sinful and rebellious at some time in their lives. You've heard me quote G.K. Chesterton many times. I don't know why people have a problem with original sin. It's the one doctrine we have empirical data for. Look at the last 3,000 years of human history. The most important corrective lenses we can put on is verse 17. It's not just the negative. It's not just recognizing who people are. It's understanding the potential of what divinely created but fallen people of God can become. New creations. Paul says we can become new creations in Christ. Forgiven, restored, redeemed creations in Christ. There is such joy in seeing people come to faith. I mean, is there anything better, really, than seeing lives transformed as new creations? To see them grow in Christ. To overcome the obstacles that are in front of us. To share the gospel. Brian Parks was in his office at Knowledge Village and befriended Nissen, Nissen Matthew, right here in our church. Two guys right in our church. Nissen did not know God. He came from a Christian background, but he didn't know God. Brian befriended him and began eating lunch with him. And at every lunch, they would open the Bible, much to Nissen's chagrin, because this was in the food court at the cafeteria at Knowledge Village. And they would study the Bible. And Nissen said he was really embarrassed by this. This this middle-aged white guy was meeting with him in the food court in front of all his friends and then studying the Bible. Nissen says he often wondered if maybe Brian didn't have friends his own age. (laughs) But he was drawn to the scriptures. He was drawn in to what the Bible said about who Nissen was. That's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It locates us in the universe and tells us who we are. 
over time, as they studied the scripture, Nissen came to faith. He recognized he was not a Christian, though he came from a Christian background. He was not a Christian. Listen, it's been said that growing up in a garage doesn't make you a car. Growing up in a church doesn't make you a Christian. And Nissen realized that. He realized though he had had a Christian background, he had never repented of his sin and put his complete faith and trust in Christ. And he did on campus. He goes and gets Joanna. She's the only person he knows that might be interested and kind of getting together and studying the Bible. And so he pulls her in, and they start studying the Bible with Brian. And Joanna is really taken with this. She thinks it's a little strange that this middle-aged white guy is wandering around with him. But, but she attends a student conference, and she hears the gospel. And she repents and turns to Christ. She comes to faith. She um, slips her younger brother, Adrian, who's up here playing the guitar, into the conference. He wasn't supposed to be there. It was just for university students. He was a high school kid, but he slips in. He hears the gospel too. He comes to faith. They begin talking to their parents about this new experience in the gospel that they have, that that they need to understand. And so Frank and Sneha, Frank, come to Christ. Frank's our elder now. Now listen, just think of the chain, the chain from the throne of God that stretches from Brian through Nissen to Joanna to Adrian to Frank and Snehas. Frank's our elder here. Adrian's leading music. Nissen and Joanna are involved in proclaiming the good news of Christ, leading a small group with with us uh, here at Redeemer. Now, listen, if you've been touched by their lives, you're a part of that story too. If any of you have been touched by those guys' ministry, you see it's an ongoing new creation in Christ. You didn't know them. You didn't know them like I knew them back when they were rebellious against God. But I remember the joy of seeing flowering faith happen and the ways that we can see people differently. What what about you? When you meet other people, is what's on your mind how difficult it is for them to come to faith or how hard it would be for you? for you to share with that person. Maybe they're too sinful and hard-hearted, too isolated. Maybe their lives are too good. Maybe they look like they have everything they need. Maybe, maybe you know non-Christians that have a better life than you. Listen, don't, don't be tempted to believe that for a second. Don't be tempted to believe it. People need, need Christ because he offers something the world cannot give. Think of the obstacles that could have been in Brian's mind as a white middle-aged guy who was in an office reaching out to an Indian guy who was a student half his age on campus. But because of the power of God, you see, because of, of the way the Holy Spirit works, because we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. God can accomplish through you powerful things in bringing others into this new creation, this new life in Christ. The scope of it is phenomenal, which is point two. It's how we view the world, because this is for the whole world. It's not not just about how ambassadors view people. It's about how ambassadors view the world. Paul says in verse 19, that God is reconciling 
the world. It's a global message. It goes out to all the world. That doesn't mean that all the world is reconciled. It means the message goes to all the world. Now, I think there's this tendency in us to believe that somehow this message is just for our part of the world. But we live in a land that claims Jesus is not the Son of God. And though we certainly see that our Muslim cousins and friends certainly honor Jesus more than much of the Western world, we also see that to deny Jesus is divine is to cut the heart out of Christianity. And we hear constant, constant misinformation about who Jesus was. And sometimes when I see this tsunami of misinformation about Christ, I'm tempted to despair. And yet you should know there are no barriers to God. He is the one that's doing this to those you know around the world. It's happening now in the world. And we need to open our eyes to the joy of this global work. Who would get that more than this congregation? Who would get that more than us gathered from 70, 80 different nations every week? Nestoran is a friend of mine. She was in Tehran, a good Muslim girl. She was 17 years old. She was taking a shower. And in the shower, heard a voice. And the voice said, I'm going to wash you of your sin. So she went to the local mosque the next day and asked her mom. I heard this voice. This voice said that he was going to wash me of my sin. Who was that? And the imam said, that was Jesus. He is the only prophet who talks this way. On the same day, in the Netherlands, her sister, who was a believer, went to church. And a woman came up to her and said, listen, last night I had a dream. I never have dreams. I never remember my dreams. But this dream was so real and so vivid. I've got to tell you. I dreamed that you were sitting on a bed with two women and you were sharing the gospel with them. I think you're supposed to go home to Tehran. And Nestoran's uh, sister said, I, I can't go home. I don't have any money. And this woman said, no, you don't understand. This dream was so real and so vivid. I've already bought your ticket. Here it is. Nestoran's sister flies to Tehran. She goes home. She doesn't know where to go. She knocks on the door. Nestoran and her mother answer the door. Nestoran's sister says, I don't know why I'm here. Nestoran says, I know why you're here. Jesus has spoken to me, and you're here to tell me about him. So the two women went and sat on the bed, just like the dream. And Nestoran's sister shared the gospel with her. And both of them came to faith. So started an amazing journey with Jesus and with her husband, Una, in ministry. For those of you who find this story out of your experience, maybe out of your theology, remember that this vision was the start of Christian life for Nestron that involved humiliation, jail, eventual deportation for both Una and Nestron. For their brave faith, they spent time in jail. 
in Iran where they expected to die, just as their pastor had been murdered. Yuna says the hardest thing he's ever had to do was watch his wife under interrogation. Yet she was so brave for the gospel. When they left Evan prison, they told the guard, we have told you everything you need to know to understand the gospel. And we want to call on you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. And their interrogator, and I can only imagine his sin, hung his head and said, I just might do that one day. I'd just like to point out there are no barriers to God. There are no barriers to Him. Do you believe that? Do you see people from other backgrounds and think you can't get to them? Do you see people of other faith backgrounds and put aside any hope that you might be able to talk to them about Christ? Do you lose heart? Don't. God has given us this ministry for the whole world. Which brings us to point number three, just how we see our role. It's not just how ambassadors view people. It's not just how ambassadors view the world. It's about how we see ourselves and our role in God's word. Paul says in verse 18 and again in 19 and 20 that we are Christ's ambassadors. That he is making his appeal through us. Now, now Paul purposely chooses ambassadorship here as an image to make sure we understand our role. Now, again, if there's ever an audience that understands this, it's Redeemer Church of Dubai. Ambassadors exist to deliver a message. That's what they're for. So according to Paul, that when you sit down over a cup of coffee with a friend, or you're having a cup of tea, and somehow, you know that feeling, somehow there's a shift in the conversation to something spiritual. And suddenly, you're aware that God has set you up, that God has you there for a purpose to talk about spiritual things. You have a choice at that moment to either move ahead in that spiritual discussion or duck. You know, kind of get down here. You see, that, you see that spiritual conversation coming towards you. It's winding its way down the hall. It's coming right at you. You step this side. It comes over here. You step this side. It comes over here. And then, you know, it can either go over you or boom, hit you. Right? You know that, you know that feeling? often tell God, you are invisible and I'm not. You know, in those situations where I feel uncomfortable, I'm a little worried, I think it's unfair that God's invisible and I'm not. But he moves in us in those times because he's chosen us as the ministers of reconciliation. He's chosen us, those of us who know him, to be ambassadors. That somehow, from the very throne of God, through you, to that person, stretches a chain, a cable, a message of salvation, a message of reconciliation. It's hard to believe, I think. But when that happens, you represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God. You guys don't look very impressed with that. 
Let me say it again. When you are in a spiritual conversation that stretches from the very throne of God through you to another person, you represent the foreign power of the kingdom of God. That's ambassadorship. That's what it's about. How could this be? Well, if it's true, we need to get the message right. You need to make sure you know the message. Listen, ambassadors are not at liberty to change the message. In fact, history is is full of stories of ambassadors who got the message wrong, which caused enormous problems. So you're you're not at liberty to kind of make the gospel message nicer to people. You can't nice it up, make it prettier. You can't dumb it down. You need to understand it. You need to explain it. Paul's primary method method of evangelism was a teaching method. He taught the gospel. Ambassadors don't leave the message undelivered. One One of the greatest obstacles to evangelism, to sharing our faith, of being good ambassadors, is fear of man. We're so afraid of what people think of us. Ambassadors, just by the way, by definition, don't live at home. Like us. We, we are all wanderers in the world. Now, that, that doesn't mean to be an ambassador you have to move out of your house. It's just we don't, we don't live in the world. Christians should always have this healthy discomfort with the world. If you're too comfortable with the world, then there's something wrong. If your aspiration is to live a comfortable life in the world, then you don't quite get what it means to be an ambassador. You should be challenged to think about that. Now notice in verse 20, there's a bit of a tricky verse in the second half. It can sound like on first reading that Paul is calling the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. And certainly the Corinthians had problems. But no, actually what Paul is doing there is repeating the message. He's saying, we are Christ's ambassadors, and here's our message. We shout out, we, we cry out, we beg you, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This, this comes out of our full life and ministry. The gospel should flow out of us. The gospel is not just something you do to people. You know, for years... I thought evangelism was like this separate component of life that you went and did every now and then and got it out of the way. And so I get this kind of what I called head of steam evangelism up, you know, like a steam engine. And I, you know, I, I get this head of steam up and then I go, you know, you know, evangelize on someone. You're like Johan sitting here. I was, oh, Johan, I'm so sorry. I evangelized on you. You know, it's like, you know, he didn't like it. I didn't like it, you know. Felt bad, but then I felt relieved. I didn't have to do it till the next head of steam, right? No, I, I think that's a I think that's a warped view of, of evangelism. Evangelism needs to come out of us because we so live in the gospel. We're so it's so part of us. It's a a warp and woof of who we are. Evangelism and and ambassadorship and crying out. We we implore you. We beg you to be reconciled to God. Comes out of our understanding of who we are before the holy God about what it means to have lived in the gospel such that it, it so forms our life, we don't want to miss opportunities to talk about what God has done for us. 
I think there's a, a tendency for us to just, especially when we're in Christian gatherings, to assume the gospel, to move on to other bigger things. Like, like there is another bigger thing. There's not. The gospel is the end-all and be-all of the Christian life. It's not the ABCs of the Christian life, as Tim Keller says. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. Everything we do relates in and out of the gospel. Forgiveness, salvation, grace, mercy, love. All those things are part of the gospel. So we don't assume it, even when we're together. So at elder meetings or leadership gatherings or music team uh, practice, we're thinking of the gospel. We're thinking about how we can do it. Let me, let me tell you a story, how this played out in my own life, how, how I was convicted of this in my own life. Um, Nissen, same Nissen, brings a kill to a leadership conference. I'm, I'm directing this leadership conference. I've decided, you know, the group has grown and we need to get some students together to talk about leadership, Christian leadership. We're going to talk about Christian principles on leadership. And so uh, Akil is there, and uh, I go up to Nissen and I say, Nissen, look, um, you know, Akil's a Hindu, and I just don't think he should be at a Christian leadership conference. You know, it's, about, it's Christians, and we're talking about Christian leadership. And Nissen goes, I know, but he really wants to be here. Uh, now, I've been involved in working with students for many, many years, and I still, I still can't believe how dumb I am at times. Of course, Akil was there because Shibnita was there, this cute Indian girl. <laughs> um, anyhow, he was very faithful. He came every week. And um, um, finally, I realized Nissen is not going to ask Akil not to come to our Christian leadership conference. So I'm going to go talk to him about it. So I go up to Akil. He's sitting in my living room. He's in the chair. Akil, there's something I need to talk to you about. He goes, you know, there's something I need to talk to you about too. I said, you go first. He goes, I've become a Christian. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, how'd that happen? And he said, well, I've been sitting here listening to you guys. I kind of thought I was coming here to talk about, about leadership, you know, something I could put on my resume or getting a job or something. But you know, as, as you guys talked, you kept talking about the gospel. And, and over time, I came to under, understand that I need to repent of sin and put my faith in Christ alone for salvation. I, I've done that. I said, wow. And he said, what did you want to talk to me about? And I said, never mind. <laughs> Went back to Nissan. Nissan, I'm sorry. Keep inviting the Hindus. They're welcome. Because it's our hope that anything we do, any gathering we have, holds up the gospel. We don't assume it. Does that make sense? Now listen, that would have been a setting very easy to assume the gospel. It's very easy to do that even when you preach. So let, let, me, just, let me just take a moment and say, I'm sure some of you have wandered in with a friend. You maybe don't even know why you're here, but you're checking out Christianity or you're trying to figure out what it is Christians believe. Maybe you're like a kill. You're just sitting in. I want to talk to you about this message because it's for you too. You need to see yourself through God's eyes. You need to recognize that number one, you are sinful, fallen, broken, and separated from God. That the Bible says you are an enemy of His if you've not been born again, if you've not been reconciled to the living God. At the same time, recognize that you can be a new creation completely loved, 
completely forgiven, completely restored to a loving relationship with a holy God who is your Father. What's required of you is not to earn His favor, but to repent of sin. Turn to Him in complete faith and trust. That's the message we shout out. I'm like Paul. I want want you to be reconciled to God. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. Our understanding of God's work in the message of the, the gospel. Verse 21. So it's not just how we view people. It's not just how we view the world. It's not just how we see ourselves and our role in Christ's call as ambassadors. It's having a firm stranglehold on exactly what it is God has done. Verse 21 bears repeating. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I want to I say to my shame, there have been times when I've preached out of 2 Corinthians 5 and I left off that verse because it was too hard. Maybe I didn't understand it. But Paul wants us to understand this verse. And much ink has been spilt on verse 21. You should know that because it contains two major theological ideas. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to do something. Pastors don't usually tell you this. I'm getting ready to do something. I'm getting ready to use some big words. Most pastors don't, don't give you a warning. I'm warning you. I'm going to use a couple big words, and I want you to know them. I think you can know them. And it's important because it's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Here's the two major theological ideas. They deal with righteousness and atonement. Atonement means to pay for sin. Who pays for sin? How do we atone for sin, our failings? The words are imputed righteousness and substitutionary atonement. Both of those two theological concepts are in verse uh, verse 21. Just 24 words. And they're good words to understand. It's a behind-the-scenes look at what Christ did on the cross. And like I said, if you don't get these two terms, you don't understand the Christian faith. You don't have to use imputed righteousness or substitutionary atonement. You may not use those words. But you need to understand the enormous concept behind them. Imputed righteousness means a righteousness that doesn't come from inside of you. It's given. It's put in you. Or in other words, our righteousness, contrary to all the other religions of the world, comes to us from God. It's not self-righteousness. It's God-given righteousness. Where in His great love, God took the sins of all who would repent and believe and put Him on His perfect, sinless Son that we might be forgiven by God. Paul says that Jesus became sin, not a sinner. He became sin. Sin was imputed, was put into Jesus. Jesus referred to this as drinking a cup of wrath. And then God takes all who would repent and believe in Jesus and imputes into them Christ's righteousness so that he declares us both forgiven 
and righteous before God. When we stand before God, we're not just forgiven of all the sins that we've committed, which are legion, but we're also given the righteousness of Christ. That's imputed righteousness. I love how John MacArthur put it, his summary in the meaning of this text. On the cross, God treated Christ as if he had committed all the sins of every sinner who would ever believe so that he could treat every believer as if they had lived Christ's perfect life. And oh my, what a joy that is to know that you do not have to earn God's favor. You do not have to claw your way back into a holy God's presence. He has done that for us. He is willing to give that to you if you would but believe in him. Let me explain the other big concept, substitutionary atonement. Just as imputed righteousness is a righteousness that comes from outside of us, substitutionary atonement comes from outside of us too. So when we pay for sins, when we atone for sins, we don't do that by ourselves. Many many people think they must. Many people think it involves giving all their money or, or living a perfect life or doing, doing good deeds, changing the course of the world. But that's not what it's about. Substitutionary atonement is God atoning for you. Listen, this is, this is not a concept that should come hard to us who have, who have read the Bible. Starting in Genesis and going all the way through the books of the Bible all of the Bible point to Jesus. Luke, in, in Luke 24, Jesus says, all the prophets in the scriptures point to me. It's my belief that God is preparing the world through the sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament to the very thing that Jesus did on the cross. I remember as a young Christian reading the Old Testament and thinking, good grief, this is like reading a phone book. How can you read this? This is like reading a dictionary. Because I didn't understand, you see. I, my, my mind was not sharpened to the ways of God. And as you read these Old Testament sacrificial laws, God, God is preparing the world for what one day would happen in Christ. Perhaps you remember the series that we did when we first started Redeemer about three years ago on the Old Testament and how it pointed to God and the gospel. Now, we see God in the Old Testament. The first, the first sermon we talked about was in Genesis 22, where we looked at God's call to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We talked about how, how easy it was to look at that story and think that was just about a man of faith and we need to be like Abraham, when that's not the point of the story at all. Abraham is called to sacrifice his son. He puts him on the altar. His arms are bound. He raises the knife over Isaac, his son. Now, if anyone, if anyone is in that story, we tend to put ourselves in the place of Abraham. But you know what? You're not Abraham. I'm not either. You know who we are in that story? We're Isaac, bound in sin. The wrath of God hangs over us like a knife. And our only hope, our only hope, is the substitute of the ram caught in the thicket. Abraham raises the knife. God says, do not harm the boy. 
and in so doing say, says, I am not like the other gods around you. I will never call you to sacrifice your children for me. Unlike the other gods of the place where Abraham lives, God was saying to Abraham, I'm not that God. Don't harm the boy. There's the substitute, the ram. And that's traced from Genesis throughout the rest of scriptures until the point when Jesus shows up on the scene and John the Baptist sees him and says, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everyone, everyone knew what he was talking about. That it was only through Christ, not through the blood of bulls and goats and sheep, but only through Christ and his spilt blood that we could ever have hope. We could ever have hope of being reunited, being forgiven, being restored, being righteous, becoming the righteousness of God, as Paul says in verse 21. Listen, how how you understand substitutionary atonement is probably a key to whether or not you're a Christian. Because that substitutionary atonement, that ram that Abraham took and sacrificed all the way up to the real substitute in Christ. That has a lot to do with how you understand and whether or not you're a person of true Christian faith. When, when you hear this, when you hear, when you hear this st- stuff about imputed righteousness, that we might actually have this opportunity to stand before the living God righteous, the righteousness of Christ before the living God, or, or when you hear about substitutionary atonement and how the entire message of the Bible points to this time on the cross when Christ stretched out his arms for you and me as a substitute, and God put all the sins of the world on him at that point. Does your heart kind of jump? Are you more interested in lunch? If it's a big yawn, if your heart is that hard to what God claims to have done for you, then you need to take another look at yourself and about your standing before the living God. Are you willing to give your life to it? That's what's, that's what's asked. You need to give your life to it. Christian, those of you who know Christ, Tougher question. Are you willing to die for it? Is this before all in your life? One of of the key tests to whether or not I'm a true Christian is, is Jesus number one? Is he number one in my life? And I suspect that many of you, most of you are. I see it in your lives. And I'm so grateful for you. I see you day in, day out, laying down your life for the truth of the gospel, staking your life that Jesus' claims are true, forsaking job, forsaking family, putting aside those things that the world calls pleasure. I see you do it. Maybe a harder question. Are you willing to call other people to die for it? It's harder, actually, to do that. Are you willing, when you call out, we beg you, we implore you, be reconciled to God. When you 
call out the message that Paul talks about here? Are you willing to call people to die for it themselves? I was in Kenya. I had gone down to the salt flats in the Masai Mara in a scruffy town called Magadi. They harvest salt there. And I was speaking in the high school there to um, high school kids. I said kind of what I said today. Be reconciled to God. And this kid named Robert comes up to me and talks to me at the end. He's 14, 15 years old. He said, listen, I, I, um, I can't tell you how this message has pierced my heart. And uh, I've been living in rebellion, but I'm ready to come to faith in Christ. And I said, Robert, that's, that's thrilling. Tell me, what's held you back in the past? I just wanted to know. And he said, well, actually, my father hates Christians. And he has told me that if I ever converted, that if I ever became a Christian, he would beat me. He kind of put his head down. He said, tonight I'll bleed. I'm amazed at the thinness of my faith at times. Here I just preach the gospel. And yet when this kid talks to me, this sweet young man, full of faith, I almost say, well, we don't have to do this. I say that to my shame. But I had to resolve that long ago. It's better. It is better to know Jesus and to die in a short time than to not know Jesus and live long life on earth eking out what pleasure you can from the world and face God in judgment without Him as your righteousness without being found in Christ. It's better in the world, not just then. It's better now, even if we're faced with death. Do you believe that? That kind of belief makes vibrant Christians, makes vibrant congregations. Those who are only afraid of sin. Those who... Move out in the power of God, trusting in the gospel, having our confidence in the scriptures, knowing that God moves in and through us, and that one day we will stand before God and see that we are His righteousness. It's part of our call as ambassadors to make sure we understand the preciousness of God's call in the gospel. Four things that mark ambassadors. Our view of people. Our view of God's work in the world. Our grasp of our role. And our understanding of God's work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... um, Oh, we so long 
we so long to be reconciled with the living God. We acknowledge to you that we tend not to believe it. We tend to think that we have to do it ourselves. We tend to think that we've got to atone for ourselves, that we've got to be self-righteous, not God-righteous. We tend to believe, Father, that you would never use us, that you would never call us to be ambassadors to the world around us. Oh, God, help our weak faith so that we might be Christ's ambassadors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.